Happy New Year! Well, we did it. We managed to get through an entire volume of the Mayorzine. I'm working on recording the bonus story for the omnibus, Beasley's Christmas Party. So to follow up on last week's issue, the concert was postponed until later this month, and I forgot that I had already bought my wife that hat. I looked everywhere to double-check and didn't find it, so I thought I was okay. But the shoes arrived the other day, and she loved them. She adores the sleep shirt, and the first hat is wearing out, so she liked that I got another to replace it. I also got her some very nice earrings from Pandora. So she got me a lot of nice shirts, updating my wardrobe, she put it, some very pretty puzzles, I'm a puzzle fiend, and the Lego Hogwarts Express. In case you don't already know, I'm a huge geek, so Lego, Harry Potter, and it's a really nice looking set too. I'm really looking forward to putting that one together. So with the new year comes the inevitable resolutions. I haven't personally made resolutions in a very long time, but I did hear about this thing called spreadsheet journaling. I've been trying to keep a journal, but that never goes very well for me. I just can't keep up with it. Well, some people do this thing called bullet list journaling, where they just use bullet point lists to jot down what happened that day, or something like that. Using a spreadsheet kind of takes it to the next level. You basically just track stats, uh, like in a video game. Steps walked, dinners eaten, hours of exercise, etc. Aside from my finances, there are actually several things I've been wanting to keep track of in such a fashion, so I'm giving it a try. I'll let you know in a month or two how it's going. Do you have any resolutions or plans for the new year? Join us on the Patreon and let us know in the comments. As always, it's free to engage in the comments. Okay, so, Algernon Blackwood. He's a British author and journalist who worked for the New York Times for a while in the States. He's also one of the most prolific ghost story writers in the genre, so fun fun. As I was going through his stuff, I noticed he wrote a bunch of non-connected stories, all featuring a character named Jim Shorthouse, who was something of a psychic. There were four of them, so I thought it would be fun to have January be Jim Shorthouse month. We'll also be doing our first serialization of a longer story over the course of a few issues. Before we have our first adventure with Mr. Shorthouse, let's check into a boarding house recommended by good old O. Henry. The Furnished Room By O. Henry Restless, shifting, fugacious as time itself is a certain vast bulk of the population of the red brick district of the Lower West Side. Homeless, they have a hundred homes. They flit from furnished room to furnished room, transients forever. Transients in abode, transients in heart and mind. They sing home sweet home in ragtime. They carry their lairs and penats in a bandbox. Their vine is entwined about a picture hat. A rubber plant is their fig tree. Hence the houses of this district, having had a thousand dwellers, should have a thousand tales to tell. Mostly dull ones, no doubt. But it would be strange if there could not be found a ghost or two in the wake of all these vagrant guests. 
One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions, ringing their bells. At the twelfth, he rested his lean hand baggage upon the step and wiped the dust from his hatband and forehead. The bell sounded faint and far away in some remote hollow depths. To the door of this, the twelfth house whose bell he had rung, came a housekeeper who made him think of an unwholesome, surfeited worm that had eaten its nut to a hollow shell and now sought to fill the vacancy with edible lodgers. He asked if there was a room to let. Come in, said the housekeeper. Her voice came from her throat. Her throat seemed lined with fur. I have the third floor back, vacant since a week back. Should you wish to look at it? The young man followed her up the stairs. A faint light from no particular source mitigated the shadows of the halls. They trod noiselessly upon a stair carpet that its own loom would have forsworn. It seemed to have become vegetable, to have degenerated in that rank sunless air to lush lichen or spreading moss that grew in patches to the staircase and was viscid under the foot like organic matter. At each turn of the stairs were vacant niches in the wall. Perhaps plants had once been set within them. If so, they had died in that foul and tainted air. It may be that statues of the saints had stood there, but it was not difficult to conceive that imps and devils had dragged them forth in the darkness and down to the unholy depths of some furnished pit below. This is the room, said the housekeeper from her furry throat. It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I had some most elegant people in it last summer, no trouble at all, and paid in advance to the minute. The water's at the end of the hall. Sprouse and Mooney kept it three months. They'd done a vaudeville sketch. Miss Bretta Sprouse, you may have heard of her. Oh, that was just the stage names. Right there over the dresser is where the marriage certificate hung framed. The gas is here, and you see there is plenty of closet room. It's a room everybody likes. It never stays idle long. Do you have many theatrical people rooming here? asked the young man. They comes and goes. A good proportion of my lodgers is connected with the theaters. Yes, sir, this is the theatrical district. After people never stays long anywhere, I get my share. Yes, they comes and they goes. He engaged the room, paying for a week in advance. He was tired, he said, and would take possession at once. He counted out the money. The room had been made ready, she said, even to towels and water. As the housekeeper moved away, he put for the thousandth time the question that he carried at the end of his tongue. A young girl, uh, Miss Vashner, Miss Eloise Vashner. Do you remember such a one among your lodgers? She would be singing on the stage, most likely. A fair girl, of medium height and slender, with reddish gold hair and a dark mole near her left eyebrow. No, I don't remember the name. Them stage people has names they change as often as their rooms. They comes and they goes. No, I don't call that one to mind. No, always no. Five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative. So much time spent by day in questioning managers, agents, schools, and choruses, by night among the audiences of theaters, from all-star casts down to music halls so low that he dreaded to find what he most hoped for. He who had loved her best had tried to find her. He was sure that since her disappearance from home, this great water-girt city held her somewhere. But it was like a monstrous quicksand, shifting its particles constantly, with no foundation. 
its upper granules of today buried tomorrow in ooze and slime. The furnished room received its latest guest with a first glow of pseudo-hospitality, a hectic, haggard, perfunctory welcome like the specious smile of a demirep. The sophistical comfort came in reflected gleams from the decayed furniture, the ragged brocade upholstery of a couch and two chairs, a foot-wide cheap pier glass between the two windows, from one or two gilt picture frames and a brass bedstead in a corner. The guest reclined, inert, upon a chair, while the room, confused in speech as though it were an apartment in Babel, tried to discourse to him of its diverse tenantry. A polychromatic rug like some brilliant flowered rectangular tropical islet lay surrounded by a billowy sea of soiled matting. Upon the gay-papered wall were those pictures that pursue the homeless one from house to house. The Huguenot lovers, the first quarrel, the wedding breakfast, Psyche at the fountain. The mantle's chastely severe outline was ingloriously veiled behind some pert drapery drawn rakishly askew like the sashes of the Amazonian ballet. Upon it was some desolate flotsam cast aside by the rooms marooned when a lucky sail had borne them to a fresh port. A trifling vase or two, pictures of actresses, a medicine bottle, some stray cards out of a deck. One by one, as the characters of a cryptograph become explicit, the little signs left by the furnished room's procession of guests developed a significance. The threadbare space in the rug in front of the dresser told that lovely women had marched in the throng. Tiny fingerprints on the wall spoke of little prisoners trying to feel their way to sun and air. A splattered stain, raying like the shadow of a bursting bomb, witnessed where a hurled glass or bottle had splintered with its contents against the wall. Across the pier glass had been scrawled with a diamond in staggering letters the name Marie. It seemed that the succession of dwellers in the furnished room had turned in fury, perhaps tempted beyond forbearance by its garish coldness, and wreaked upon it their passions. The furniture was chipped and bruised. The couch, distorted by bursting springs, seemed a horrible monster that had been slain during the stress of some grotesque convulsion. Some more potent upheaval had cloven a great slice from the marble mantle. Each plank in the floor owned its particular cant and shriek as from a separate and individual agony. It seemed incredible that all this malice and injury had been wrought upon the room by those who had called it for a time their home. And yet it may have been the cheated home instinct surviving blindly, the resentful rage at false household gods that had kindled their wrath. A hut that is our own, we can sweep and adorn and cherish. The young tenant in the chair allowed these thoughts to file soft-shod through his mind, while there drifted into the room furnished sounds and furnished scents. He heard in one room a tittering and incontinent slack laughter, in others the monologue of a scold, the rattling of dice, a lullaby, and one crying dully. Above him a banjo tinkled with spirit. Doors banged somewhere. The elevated trains roared intermittently. A cat yowled miserably upon a back fence, and he breathed the breath of the house, a dank savor rather than a smell, a cold, musty effluvium as from underground vaults mingled with the reeking exhalations of linoleum and mildewed and rotten woodwork. Then, suddenly, as he rested there, the room was filled with the strong, sweet odor of mignonette. It came as upon a single buffet of wind, with such sureness and fragrance and emphasis that it almost seemed a living visitant. 
And the man cried aloud, What, dear? as if he had been called, and sprang up and faced about. The rich odor clung to him and wrapped him around. He reached out his arms for it, all his senses for the time confused and commingled. How could one be peremptorily called by an odor? Surely it must have been a sound. But was it not the sound that had touched, that had caressed him? She has been in this room, he cried, and he sprang to wrest from it a token, for he knew he would recognize the smallest thing that had belonged to her or that she had touched. This enveloping scent of mignonette, the odor that she had loved and made her own, whence came it? The room had been but carelessly set in order. Scattered upon the flimsy dresser scarf were half a dozen hairpins, those discreet, indistinguishable friends of womankind, feminine of gender, infinite of mood, and uncommunicative of tense. These he ignored, conscious of their triumphant lack of identity. Ransacking the drawers of the dresser, he came upon a discarded, tiny, ragged handkerchief. He pressed it to his face. It was racy and insolent with heliotrope. He hurled it to the floor. In another drawer he found odd buttons, a theater program, a pawnbroker's card, two lost marshmallows, a book on the divination of dreams. In the last was a woman's black satin hair bow, which halted him, poised between ice and fire. But the black satin hair bow also is femininity's demure, impersonal, common ornament, and tells no tales. And then he traversed the room like a hound on the scent, skimming the walls, considering the corners of the bulging matting on his hands and knees, rummaging mantel and tables, the curtains and hangings, the drunken cabinet in the corner, for a visible sign, unable to perceive that she was there beside, around, against, within, above him, clinging to him, wooing him, calling him so poignantly through the finer senses that even his grosser ones became cognizant of the call. Once again he answered loudly, Yes, dear, and turned wild-eyed to gaze on vacancy. For he could not yet discern form and color and love and outstretched arms in the odor of mignonette. Oh, God, whence that odor? And since when have odors had a voice to call? Thus he groped. He burrowed in crevices and corners and found corks and cigarettes. These he passed in passive contempt. But once he found in a fold of the matting a half-smoked cigar, and this he ground beneath his heel with a green and trenchant oath. He sifted the room from end to end. He found dreary and ignoble small records of many a peripatetic tenant, but of her whom he sought and who may have lodged there and whose spirit seemed to hover there, he found no trace. And then he thought of the housekeeper. He ran from the haunted room downstairs and to a door that showed a crack of light. She came out to his knock. He smothered his excitement as best he could. Will you tell me, madam, he besought her, who occupied the room I have before I came? Yes, sir, I can tell you again. Twas Sprouse and Mooney, as I said. Miss Breda Sprouse it was in the theaters, but Mrs. Mooney she was. My house is well known for respectability. The marriage certificate hung, framed on a nail, over what kind of lady was Miss Sprouse, in looks, I mean. Why, black-haired, sir, short and stout, with a comical face. They left a week ago Tuesday. And before they occupied it? Why, there was a single gentleman connected with the draying business. He left owing me a week. 
Before him was Mrs. Crowder and her two children that stayed four months, and back of them was old Mr. Doyle, whose sons paid for him. He kept the room six months. That goes back a year, sir, and further I do not remember. He thanked her and crept back to his room. The room was dead. The essence that had vivified it was gone. The perfume of mignonette had departed. In its place was the old, stale odor of moldy house furniture, of atmosphere and storage. The ebbing of his hope drained his faith. He sat staring at the yellow, singing gaslight. Soon he walked to the bed and began to tear the sheets into strips. With the blade of his knife, he drove them tightly into every crevice around windows and door. When all was snug and taut, he turned out the light, turned the gas full on again, and laid himself gratefully upon the bed. It was Mrs. McCool's night to go with the can for beer, so she fetched it and sat with Mrs. Purdy in one of those subterranean retreats where housekeepers foregather and the worm dieth seldom. I rented out my third floor back this evening, said Mrs. Purdy, across a fine circle of foam. A young man took it. He went up to bed two hours ago. Now did ye, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am? said Mrs. McCool, with intense admiration. You do be a wonder for renting rooms of that kind. And did you tell him then? She concluded in a husky whisper, laden with mystery. Rooms, said Mrs. Purdy in her furriest tones, are furnished for to rent. I did not tell him, Mrs. McCool. Tis right ye are, ma'am. Tis by renting rooms we keep alive. You have the real sense for business, ma'am. There be many people will reject the renting of a room if they be told a suicide has been after, dying in the bed of it. As you say, we has our living to be making, remarked Mrs. Purdy. Yes, ma'am, tis true. Tis just one week ago this day I helped you lay out the third floor back. A pretty slip of a Colleen she was to be killing herself with the gas. A sweet little face she had, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am. She'd have been a cold handsome, as you say said Mrs. Purdy, assenting but critical, but for that mole she had a growing by her left eyebrow. Do fill up your glass again, Mrs. McCool. Okay, perhaps not the place to spend the night. Shall we try our luck elsewhere? Time to join our friend Jim Shorthouse now that he's newly arrived in New York. A Case of Eavesdropping Algernon Blackwood. Jim Shorthouse was the sort of fellow who always made a mess of things. Everything with which his hands or mind came into contact issued from such contact in an unqualified and irremediable state of mess. His college days were a mess. He was twice rusticated. His school days were a mess. 
He went to half a dozen, each passing him on to the next with a worse character and in a more developed state of mess. His early boyhood was the sort of mess that copybooks and dictionaries spell with a big M. And his babyhood, ugh, was the embodiment of howling, yowling, screaming mess. At the age of 40, however, there came a change in his troubled life when he met a girl with half a million in her own right who consented to marry him and who very soon succeeded in reducing his most messy existence into a state of comparative order and system. Certain incidents, important and otherwise, of Jim's life would never have come to be told here, but for the fact that in getting into his messes and out of them again, he succeeded in drawing himself into the atmosphere of peculiar circumstances and strange happenings. He attracted to his path the curious adventures of life as unfailingly as meat attracts flies and jam wasps. It is to the meat and jam of his life, so to speak, that he owes his experiences. His afterlife was all pudding, which attracts nothing but greedy children. With marriage, the interest of his life ceased for all but one person, and his path became regular as the sun's instead of erratic as a comet's. The first experience in order of time that he related to me shows that somewhere latent behind his disarranged nervous system there lay psychic perceptions of an uncommon order. About the age of 22, I think after his second rustication, his father's purse and patience had equally given out and Jim found himself stranded high and dry in a large American city. High and dry. And the only clothes that had no holes in them safely in the keeping of his uncle's wardrobe. Careful reflection on a bench in one of the city parks led him to the conclusion that the only thing to do was to persuade the city editor of one of the daily journals that he possessed an observant mind and a ready pen, and that he could do good work for your paper, sir, as a reporter. This then he did, standing at a most unnatural angle between the editor and the window to conceal the whereabouts of the holes. Guess we'll have to give you a week's trial, said the editor who, ever on the lookout for good chance material, took on shoals of men in that way and retained on the average one man per shoal. Anyhow, it gave Jim Shorthouse the wherewithal to sew up the holes and relieve his uncle's wardrobe of its burden. Then he went to find a living quarters, and in this proceeding his unique characteristics already referred to, what theosophists would call his karma, began unmistakably to assert themselves, for it was in the house he eventually selected that this sad tale took place. There are no diggings in American cities. The alternatives for small incomes are grim enough. Rooms in a boarding house where meals are served, or in a room house where no meals are served, not even breakfast. Rich people live in palaces, of course, but Jim had nothing to do with such like. His horizon was bounded by boarding houses and room houses, and owing to the necessary irregularity of his meals and hours, he took the latter. It was a large, gaunt-looking place in a side street, with dirty windows and a creaking iron gate. But the rooms were large, and the one he selected and paid for in advance was on the top floor. The landlady looked gaunt and dusty as the house, and quite as old. Her eyes were green and faded, and her features large. Well, she twanged with her electrifying western drawl, that's the room if you like it, and that's the price I said. Now, if you want it, why, just say so, and if you don't, why, it don't hurt me any. Jim wanted to shake her, but he feared the clouds of long-accumulated dust in her clothes, and as the price and size of the room suited him, he decided to take it. Anyone else on this floor? 
he asked. She looked at him queerly out of her faded eyes before she answered. None of my guests ever put such questions to me before, she said. But I guess you're different. Why, there's no one at all but an old jet that stayed here every bit of five years. He's over there, pointing to the end of the passage. Ah, I see, said Shorthouse feebly. So I'm alone up here. Reckon you're pretty near, she twanged out, ending the conversation abruptly by turning her back on her new guest and going slowly and deliberately downstairs. The newspaper work kept Shorthouse out most of the night. Three times a week he got home at 1 a.m. and three times at 3 a.m. The room proved comfortable enough, and he paid for a second week. His unusual hours had so far prevented his meeting any inmates of the house, and not a sound had been heard from the old gent who shared the floor with him. It seemed a very quiet house. One night, about the middle of the second week, he came home tired after a long day's work. The lamp that usually stood all night in the hall had burned itself out, and he had to stumble upstairs in the dark. He made considerable noise in doing so, but nobody seemed to be disturbed. The whole house was utterly quiet, and probably everybody was asleep. There were no lights under any of the doors. All was in darkness. It was after two o'clock. After reading some English letters that had come during the day and dipping for a few minutes into a book, he became drowsy and got ready for bed. Just as he was about to get in between the sheets, he stopped for a moment and listened. There rose in the night, as he did so, the sound of steps somewhere in the house below. Listening attentively, he heard that it was somebody coming upstairs, a heavy tread, and the owner taking no pains to step quietly. On it came up the stairs, tramp, 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 evidently the tread of a big man and one in something of a hurry. At once, thoughts connected somehow with fire and police flashed through Jim's brain but there were no sounds of voices with the steps, and he reflected in the same moment that it could only be the old gentleman keeping late hours and tumbling upstairs in the darkness. He was in the act of turning out the gas and stepping into bed when the house resumed its former stillness by the footsteps suddenly coming to a dead stop immediately outside his own room. With his hand on the gas, Shorthouse paused a moment before turning it out to see if the steps would go on again, when he was startled by a loud knocking on his door. Instantly, in obedience to a curious and unexplained instinct, he turned out the light, leaving himself and the room in total darkness. He had scarcely taken a step across the room to open the door when a voice from the other side of the wall, so close it almost sounded in his ear, exclaimed in German, Is that you, father? Come in. The speaker was a man in the next room, and the knocking, after all, had not been on his own door but on that of the adjoining chamber, which he had supposed to be vacant. Almost before the man in the passage had time to answer in German, let me in at once, Jim heard someone cross the floor and unlock the door. Then it was slammed to with a bang, and there was audible the sound of footsteps about the room, and of chairs being drawn up to a table and knocking against furniture on the way. The men seemed wholly regardless of their neighbor's comfort, for they made noise enough to waken the dead. Serves me right for taking a room in such a cheap hole, reflected Jim in the darkness. I wonder whom she's let the room to. The two rooms, the landlady had told him, were originally one. She had put up a thin partition, just a row of boards, to increase her income. The doors were adjacent, and only separated by the massive upright beam between them. When one was opened or shut, the other rattled. 
With utter indifference to the comfort of the other sleepers in the house, the two Germans had meanwhile commenced to talk both at once and at the top of their voices. They talked emphatically, even angrily. The words father and Otto were freely used. Shorthouse understood German, but as he stood listening for the first minute or two, an eavesdropper in spite of himself, it was difficult to make head or tail of the talk, for neither would give way to the other, and the jumble of guttural sounds and unfinished sentences was wholly unintelligible. Then, very suddenly, both voices dropped together, and after a moment's pause, the deep tones of one of them, who seemed to be the father, said with the utmost distinctness, You mean, Otto, that you refuse to get it? There was a sound of someone shuffling in the chair before the answer came. I mean that I don't know how to get it. It is so much, father. It is too much. A part of it, a part of it, cried the other with an angry oath. A part of it, when ruin and disgrace are already in the house, is worse than useless. If you can get half, you can get all, you wretched fool. Half measures only damn all concerned. You told me last time, began the other firmly, but was not allowed to finish. A succession of horrible oaths drowned his sentence, and the father went on, in a voice vibrating with anger. You know she will give you anything. You have only been married a few months. If you ask and give a plausible reason, you can get all we want and more. You can ask it temporarily. All will be paid back. It will reestablish the firm, and she will never know what was done with it. With that amount, Otto, you know I can recoup all these terrible losses, and in less than a year all will be repaid. But without it, you must get it, Otto. Hear me, you must. Am I to be arrested for the misuse of trust monies? Is our honored name to be cursed and spat upon? The old man choked and stammered in his anger and desperation. Shorthouse stood shivering in the darkness and listening in spite of himself. The conversation had carried him along with it, and he had been for some reason afraid to let his neighborhood be known. But at this point he realized that he had listened too long and that he must inform the two men that they could be overheard to every single syllable. So he coughed loudly and at the same time rattled the handle of his door. It seemed to have no effect, for the voices continued just as loudly as before, the son protesting and the father growing more and more angry. He coughed again persistently, and also contrived purposely in the darkness to tumble against the partition, feeling the thin boards yield easily under his weight, and making a considerable noise in so doing. But the voices went on unconcernedly, and louder than ever. Could it be possible they had not heard? By this time Jim was more concerned about his own sleep than the morality of overhearing the private scandals of his neighbors, and he went out into the passage and knocked smartly at their door. Instantly, as if by magic, the sound ceased. Everything dropped into utter silence. There was no light under the door, and not a whisper could be heard within. He knocked again, but received no answer. Gentlemen, he began at length, with his lips close to the keyhole and in German, please do not talk so loud. I can overhear all you say in the next room. Besides, it is very late, and I wish to sleep. He paused and listened, but no answer was forthcoming. He turned the handle and found the door was locked. Not a sound broke the stillness of the night, except the faint swish of the wind over the skylight and the creaking of a board here and there in the house below. The cold air of a very early morning crept down the passage and made him shiver. The silence of the house began to impress him disagreeably. 
He looked behind him and about him, hoping and yet fearing that something would break the stillness. The voices still seemed to ring on in his ears, but that sudden silence when he knocked at the door affected him far more unpleasantly than the voices, and it put strange thoughts in his brain, thoughts he did not like or approve. Moving stealthily from the door, he peered over the banisters into the space below. It was like a deep vault that might conceal in its shadows anything that was not good. It was not difficult to fancy he saw an indistinct moving to and fro below him. Was that a figure sitting on the stairs, peering up obliquely at him out of hideous eyes? Was that a sound of whispering and shuffling down there in the dark halls and forsaken landings? Was it something more than the inarticulate murmur of the night? The wind made an effort overhead, singing over the skylight, and the door behind him rattled and made him start. He turned to go back to his room, and the draft closed the door slowly in his face as if there was someone pressing against it from the other side. When he pushed it open and went in, a hundred shadowy forms seemed to dart swiftly and silently back to their corners and hiding places. But in the adjoining room, the sounds had entirely ceased, and Shorthouse soon crept into bed and left the house with its inmates, waking or sleeping, to take care of themselves, while he entered the region of dreams and silence. Next day, strong in the common sense that the sunlight brings, he determined to lodge a complaint against the noisy occupants of the next room and make the landlady request them to modify their voices at such late hours of the night and morning. But it so happened that she was not to be seen that day, and when he returned from the office at midnight, it was, of course, too late. Looking under the door as he came up to bed, he noticed that there was no light and concluded that the Germans were not in. So much the better. He went to sleep about one o'clock, fully decided that if they came up later and woke him with their horrible noises, he would not rest till he had roused the landlady and made her reprove them with that authoritative twang in which every word was like the lash of a metallic whip. However, there proved to be no need for such drastic measures, for Shorthouse slumbered peacefully all night, and his dreams, chiefly of the fields of grain and flocks of sheep on the faraway farms of his father's estate, were permitted to run their fanciful course unbroken. Two nights later, however, when he came home tired out after a difficult day, and wet and blown about by one of the wickedest storms he had ever seen, his dreams, always of the fields and sheep, were not destined to be so undisturbed. He had already dozed off in that delicious glow that follows the removal of wet clothes and the immediate snuggling under warm blankets when his consciousness, hovering on the borderland between sleep and waking, was vaguely troubled by a sound that rose indistinctly from the depths of the house, and, between the gusts of wind and rain, reached his ears with an accompanying sense of uneasiness and discomfort. It rose on the night air with some pretense of regularity, dying away again in the roar of the wind to reassert itself distantly in the deep, brief hushes of the storm. For a few minutes Jim's dreams were colored only, tinged, as it were, by this impression of fear approaching from somewhere insensibly upon him. His consciousness, at first, refused to be drawn back from that enchanted region where it had wandered, and he did not immediately awaken. But the nature of his dreams changed unpleasantly. He saw the sheep suddenly run huddled together as though frightened by the neighborhood of an enemy while the fields of waving corn became agitated, as though some monster were moving uncouthly among the crowded stalks. The sky grew dark, and in his dream an awful sound came somewhere from the clouds. It was in reality the sound downstairs growing more distinct. 
Shorthouse shifted uneasily across the bed with something like a groan of distress. The next minute he awoke and found himself sitting straight up in bed, listening. Was it a nightmare? Had he been dreaming evil dreams that his flesh crawled and the hair stirred on his head? The room was dark and silent, but outside the wind howled dismally and drove the rain with repeated assaults against the rattling windows. How nice it would be, the thought flashed through his mind, if all winds, like the west wind, went down with the sun. They made such fiendish noises at night, like the crying of angry voices. In the daytime they had such a different sound. If only... Hark! It was no dream after all, for the sound was momentarily growing louder, and its cause was coming up the stairs. He found himself speculating feebly what this cause might be, but the sound was still too indistinct to enable him to arrive at any definite conclusion. The voice of a church clock striking two made itself heard above the wind. It was just about the hour when the Germans had commenced their performance three nights before. Shorthouse made up his mind that if they began it again, he would not put up with it for very long. Yet he was already horribly conscious of the difficulty he would have of getting out of bed. The clothes were so warm and comforting against his back. The sound, still steadily coming nearer, had by this time become differentiated from the confused clamor of the elements and had resolved itself into the footsteps of one or more persons. The Germans hang em, thought Jim. But what on earth is the matter with me? I never felt so queer in all my life. He was trembling all over and felt as cold as though he were in a freezing atmosphere. His nerves were steady enough and he felt no diminution of physical courage but he was conscious of a curious sense of malaise and trepidation, such as even the most vigorous men have been known to experience when in the first grip of some horrible and deadly disease. As the footsteps approached, this feeling of weakness increased. He felt a strange lassitude creeping over him, a sort of exhaustion, accompanied by a growing numbness in the extremities and a sensation of dreaminess in the head as if perhaps the consciousness were leaving its accustomed seat in the brain and preparing to act on another plane. Yet, strange to say, as the vitality was slowly withdrawn from his body, his senses seemed to grow more acute. Meanwhile, the steps were already on the landing at the top of the stairs, and Shorthouse, still sitting upright in bed, heard a heavy body brush past his door and along the wall outside. Almost immediately afterwards, the loud knocking of someone's knuckles on the door of the adjoining room. Instantly, though so far not a sound had proceeded from within, he heard, through the thin partition, a chair pushed back, and a man quickly crossed the floor and opened the door. Ah, it's you, he heard in the son's voice. Had the fellow then been sitting silently in there all this time, waiting for his father's arrival? To Shorthouse it came not as a pleasant reflection by any means. There was no answer to this dubious greeting, but the door was closed quickly, and then there was a sound as if a bag or parcel had been thrown on a wooden table and had slid some distance across it before stopping. "'What's that?' asked the son, with anxiety in his tone. "'You may know before I go,' returned the other gruffly. Indeed, his voice was more than gruff. It betrayed ill-suppressed passion." Shorthouse was conscious of a strong desire to stop the conversation before it proceeded any further, but somehow or other his will was not equal to the task, and he could not get out of bed. The conversation went on, every tone and inflection distinctly audible above the noise of the storm. In a low voice the father continued, 
Jim missed some of the words at the beginning of the sentence. It ended with, But now they've all left, and I've managed to get up to you. You know what I've come for. There was a distinct menace in his tone. Yes, returned the other. I have been waiting. And the money? asked the father impatiently. No answer. You've had three days to get it in, and I've contrived to stave off the worst so far. But tomorrow is the end. No answer. Speak, Otto. What have you got for me? Speak, my son, for God's sake, tell me. There was a moment's silence, during which the old man's vibrating accents seemed to echo through the rooms. Then came in a low voice the answer. I have nothing. Otto, cried the other with passion. Nothing. I can get nothing, came almost in a whisper. You lie, cried the other in a half-stifled voice. I swear you lie. Give me some money. A chair was heard scraping along the floor. Evidently the men had been sitting over the table and one of them had risen. Shorthouse heard the bag or parcel drawn across the table and then a step as if one of the men was crossing to the door. Father, what's in that? I must know, said Otto, with the first signs of determination in his voice. There must have been an effort on the son's part to gain possession of the parcel in question, and on the father's to retain it, for between them it fell to the ground. A curious rattle followed its contact with the floor. Instantly there were sounds of a scuffle. The men were struggling for the possession of the box. The elder man with oaths and blasphemous imprecations, the other with short gasps that betokened the strength of his efforts. It was of short duration, and the younger man had evidently won for a minute later was heard his angry exclamation. I knew it! Her jewels! You scoundrel! You shall never have them! It is a crime! The elder man uttered a short, guttural laugh, which froze Jim's blood and made his skin creep. No word was spoken, and for the space of ten seconds there was a living silence. Then the air trembled with the sound of a thud, followed immediately by a groan and the crash of a heavy body falling over onto the table. A second later there was a lurching from the table onto the floor and against the partition that separated the rooms. The bed quivered an instant at the shock, but the unholy spell was lifted from his soul and Jim Shorthouse sprang out of bed and across the floor in a single bound. He knew that ghastly murder had been done, the murder by a father of his son. With shaking fingers but a determined heart he lit the gas and the first thing in which his eyes corroborated the evidence of his ears was the horrifying detail that the lower portion of the partition bulged unnaturally into his own room. The glaring paper with which it was covered had cracked under the tension, and the boards beneath it bent inwards towards him. What hideous load was behind him, he shuddered to think. All this he saw in less than a second. Since the final lurch against the wall, not a sound had proceeded from the room, not even a groan or a footstep. All was still but the howl of the wind, which to his ears had in it a note of triumphant horror. Shorthouse was in the act of leaving the room to rouse the house and send for the police. In fact, his hand was already on the doorknob, when something in the room arrested his attention. Out of the corner of his eyes, he thought he caught sight of something moving. He was sure of it, and turning his eyes in the direction, he found he was not mistaken. Something was creeping slowly towards him along the floor. It was something dark and serpentine in shape, and it came from the place where the partition bulged. 
He stooped down to examine it with feelings of intense horror and repugnance, and he discovered that it was moving toward him from the other side of the wall. His eyes were fascinated, and for the moment he was unable to move. Silently, slowly, from side to side like a thick worm, it crawled forward into the room beneath his frightened eyes, until at length he could stand it no longer and stretched out his arm to touch it. But at the instant of contact, he withdrew his hand with a suppressed scream. It was sluggish, and it was warm, and he saw that his fingers were stained with living crimson. A second more, and Shorthouse was out in the passage with his hand on the door of the next room. It was locked. He plunged forward with all his weight against it, and the lock giving way, he fell headlong into a room that was pitch dark and very cold. In a moment, he was on his feet again and trying to penetrate the blackness. Not a sound, not a movement, not even the sense of a presence. It was empty, miserably empty. Across the room, he could trace the outline of a window with rain streaming down the outside and the blurred lights of the city beyond. But the room was empty, appallingly empty, and so still. He stood there, cold as ice, staring, shivering, listening. Suddenly there was a step behind him, and a light flashed into the room, and when he turned quickly with his arm up as if to ward off a terrific blow, he found himself face to face with the landlady. Instantly the reaction began to set in. It was nearly three o'clock in the morning, and he was standing there with bare feet and striped pajamas in a small room, which in the merciful light he perceived to be absolutely empty, carpetless, and without a stick of furniture, or even a window blind. There he stood staring at the disagreeable landlady, and there she stood too, staring and silent, in a black wrapper, her head almost bald, her face white as chalk, shading a sputtering candle with one bony hand and peering over it at him with her blinking green eyes. She looked positively hideous. Well, she drawled at length, I heard you right enough. Guess you couldn't sleep? Or just prowling round a bit, is that it? The empty room, the absence of all traces of the recent tragedy, the silence, the hour, his striped pajamas and bare feet, everything together combined to deprive him momentarily of speech. He stared at her blankly without a word. Well, clanked the awful voice. My dear woman, he burst out finally. There's been something awful. So far his desperation took him, but no farther. He positively stuck at the substantive. Oh, there hasn't been nothing, she said slowly, still peering at him. I reckon you've only seen and heard what the others did. I never can keep folks on this floor long. Most of them catch on sooner or later. That is the ones that's kind of quick and sensitive. Only you being an Englishman, I thought you wouldn't mind. Nothing really happens, it's only thinking like. Shorthouse was beside himself. He felt ready to pick her up and drop her over the banisters, candle and all. Look there, he said, pointing at her within an inch of her blinking eyes with the fingers that had touched the oozing blood. Look there, my good woman. Is that only thinking? She stared a minute, as if not knowing what he meant. I guess so, she said at length. 
he followed her eyes, and to his amazement saw that his fingers were as white as usual and quite free from the awful stain that had been there ten minutes before. There was no sign of blood. No amount of staring could bring it back. Had he gone out of his mind? Had his eyes and ears played such tricks with him? Had his senses become false and perverted? He dashed past the landlady, out into the passage, and gained his own room in a couple of strides. Whew! The partition no longer bulged. The paper was not torn. There was no creeping, crawling thing on the faded old carpet. It's all over now, drawled the metallic voice behind him. I'm going to bed again. He turned and saw the landlady slowly going downstairs again still shading the candle with her hand and peering up at him from time to time as she moved. A black, ugly, unwholesome object, he thought, as she disappeared into the darkness below, and the last flicker of her candle threw a queer-shaped shadow along the wall and over the ceiling. Without hesitating a moment, Shorthouse threw himself into his clothes and went out of the house. He preferred the storm to the horrors of that top floor, and he walked the streets till daylight. In the evening, he told the landlady he would leave next day, in spite of her assurances that nothing more would happen. It never comes back, she said. That is, not after he's killed. Shorthouse gasped. You gave me a lot for my money, he growled. Well, it aren't my show, she drawled. I'm no spirit medium. You take chances. Some'll sleep right along and never hear nothing. Others, like yourself, are different and get the whole thing. Who's the old gentleman? Does he hear it? asked Jim. There's no old gentleman at all, she answered coolly. I just told you that to make you feel easy-like, in case you did hear anything. You were all alone on the floor. Say now, she went on after a pause in which Shorthouse could think of nothing to say but unpublishable things. Say now, do tell, did you feel sort of cold when the show was on? Sort of tired and weak, I mean, as if you might be going to die? How can I say? he answered savagely. What I felt God only knows. Well, but he won't tell, she drawled out. Only I was wondering how you really did feel, because the man who had that room last was found one morning in bed. In bed? He was dead. He was the one before you. Oh, you don't need to get rattled so. You're all right. And it all really happened, they do say. This house used to be a private residence some twenty-five years ago. And a German family by the name of Steinhardt lived here. They had a big business on Wall Street and stood way up in things. Ah, said her listener. Oh, yes, they did, right at the top. Till one fine day it all bust and the old man skipped with the boodle. Skipped with the boodle. That's so, she said. Got clear away with all the money and the son was found dead in his house. Committed suicide, it was thought. Though there was some as said he couldn't have stabbed himself and fallen in that position. They said he was murdered. The father died in prison. 
They tried to fasten the murder on him, but there was no motive or no evidence or no something. I forget now. Very pretty, said Shorthouse. I'll show you something mighty queer anyways, she drawled, if you'll come upstairs a minute. I've heard the steps and voices lots of times. They don't faze me any. I'd just as leave here so many dogs barking. You'll find the whole story in the newspapers if you look it up. Not what goes on here, but the story of the Germans. My house would be ruined if they told all, and I'd sue for damages. They reached the bedroom, and the woman went in and pulled up the edge of the carpet where Shorthouse had seen the blood soaking in the previous night. Look there if you feel like it, said the old hag. Stooping down, he saw a dark, dull stain in the boards that corresponded exactly to the shape and position of the blood as he had seen it. That night he slept in a hotel, and the following day sought new quarters. In the newspapers on file in his office, after a long search, he found twenty years back the detailed story, substantially as the woman had said, of Steinhardt and Company's failure, the absconding and subsequent arrest of the senior partner, and the suicide, or murder, of his son Otto. The landlady's room house had formerly been their private residence. Well, we're certainly having poor luck with boarding houses, aren't we? Next week, we'll join Jim on an adventure later in his life that will keep us busy for the next three weeks. And perhaps we'll learn a bit more about Mr. Blackwood, too. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayorzine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.